Well, let's get rolling. We're going to pick up where we, we left off a couple of weeks ago. We had Brian in, as you guys recall, um, you know, and then, of course, with Easter. So we kind of took a little side turn there. But we're going to pick up talking again about the spring feasts and these festivals. If you put up that, that slide here. And to give you guys an understanding, and if you haven't been here, just so you kind of recap here, is that every year the Jews celebrate seven festivals, actually more than that, but seven that were ordained by God. You've got Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, which we're going to talk about today. Then you get into the fall feast. Now, Passover is what we celebrate Easter. When we say Easter, it's the same time as Passover. Back in the 300s, they tried to make a clear distinction um, between what Passover is and what we celebrate in Easter is the resurrection. Because Jesus actually, what we celebrate for Easter is the resurrection of Jesus. is not Passover in it itself. It's actually first fruits. And what you see is that as you study these things out, is Jesus fulfilled all of these feasts, these spring feasts, when he returns, he's going to fulfill all of these fall feasts. They were very prophetic. This wasn't just kind of random things that they had to do. If you recall in Passover, it started on the 14th of Nisan. Okay? Here. The Jews go off of two calendars. They've got a civil calendar, and they've got a religious calendar. Now, you'll notice that the, day, the name of the months are the exact same. They just shift it. And that happened in the book of Exodus. When, when God went to Moses and told him, said, hey, you're going to do all these things to get through the 10th plague. They're getting ready to start. And he says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go and I want you to take a, a lamb. has to be perfect. No splots, no, no, no blemishes, no nothing. has to be perfect. I want you to sacrifice this lamb. I want you to take the blood and apply it on the doorpost of your house. And you stay in there, you're going to eat this land, you're going to consume it. This is now going to be the first day of the month, or the first month for you, the month of Nisan. That's when things changed. So originally it was the seventh, he shifted it there. Now, when doing that, that is when that, the angel of death comes in and passes over. And if they had the blood applied to their doorposts, then that angel would pass over them and would not bring judgment upon them, hence the name Passover, Okay. Makes sense? Everybody with me so far? All right, let's go back to that other slide there real quick, big guy. So Passover in and of itself is the day that the Jews are preparing to, for the exodus. They're getting ready to leave because that firstborn son is killed, a firstborn animal, firstborn everything. Then they begin to they get freedom to go from Pharaoh. And they go. Now, there are a series of feasts that happen. So, Passover is the 14th of Nisan. Unleavened bread is the 15th of Nisan. And a lot of times they kind of overlap a little bit as far as the names and stuff. They may call it the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the Bible, but they're referring to this entire week. So that begins to go. And then three days after that is first fruit. So here's how this works prophetically, looking at what Jesus did and all of that. He was our Passover lamb. If you remember, when John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first First time in the New Testament, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is now giving this Lamb a name. Now, a year ago, we did the series, The Emmaus Road, where we were going through and we watched what we call progressive revelation as it begins to get more clear of what's going on through the Old Testament. And that we started in the very beginning when the first sin happened, we knew that a sacrifice had to be made, and God made a promise to Adam and Eve that there would be one that would come. And this person would be this Messiah that they have been waiting for for thousands of years. So we see all of that. And the further you go, it becomes more clear. And then in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, suddenly we realize this lamb isn't just some animal. It's and then John the Baptist, who was a prophet, tells us that this lamb is a person. That person is Jesus. Now, for us, we always look back and we take for granted that. But the New Testament upon which we live our lives is built upon the foundation of the old. 
Everything concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. It's almost like a commentary on it that gives us understanding. And you see that a lot of times. You're going to see that today a little bit because there are parts of things that were prophesied that were in the Old Testament that are reiterated in the book of Acts as an example that you wouldn't have necessarily picked up on had you just been living in that time. But we're able to go back and look. And so you have him as this Passover sacrifice. He was without sin. Leaven always represents sin in the Bible. They ate unleavened bread. If you guys were here for our Seder meal a couple of weeks ago, we had matzah, which is the uh, afikoman is what it's called in Hebrew. It is the bread of affliction. And it's nasty. It tastes terrible. It's not want to just, hey, let's go put some cheese on this. No, it's terrible. Eat the cheese. Leave that stuff alone. That's why they only do this during this week, because God told them to. No, I'm just kidding. But, I mean, this stuff is just big and square, but you notice in when it was made. It had stripes on it, and it had holes in it. Everything about that meal points to Jesus, and yet for thousands of years they've been doing this, and they still continue to miss it. Fascinating to me, but be that as it may, here we are. He was our unleavened bread, and the fact that he was sinless. He was without sin. And then, of course, what we talked about here is in that unleavened bread, what would happen is the high priest would go, the priest would go and there as soon as they sacrifice the, the, the lambs for Passover, they would exit the temple, they would go over to the place where they planted the barley. As soon as that sacrifice was made, the high priest would say, it is finished. Okay? Then they would go over there and then they would mark the barley with this called marking the omer, which is just a big fancy term for this round bale of barley. Essentially, they would take these cords, wrap it around it, and then they would wait three days and three nights before they would harvest that to prepare for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would be our Sunday. Excuse me, our Feast of First Fruits, which would be our Sunday. Okay? And so during that time period, that three days and three nights, the high priest would exit into the temple again, and he would stay inside. They had these, these mikvah pools and all of that where he would spiritually cleanse himself, but he could not be touched. He had to stay away from people because anything that would make him unclean would make him unfit to prepare for this sacrifice in uh, first fruits that's about to take place. He had to isolate himself. It's the same thing. Jesus was in the ground for three days and three nights, rose again on the Feast of First Fruits. All of this is prophetic narrative looking and pointing to Christ. You just have to know what you're looking for. The same is true about Passover. Or excuse me, Pentecost, not Passover. Pentecost. Pentecost has, has in the church world has taken on a bunch of different meanings, but it is something that's celebrated. So we're going to jump into Scripture today in Leviticus chapter 23. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, we've got them up on the screen, so no sweat there. And we're going to begin to break this stuff down. Now, I'm going to get real technical in the beginning to kind of give you a foundation of what's happening here, and then I'm going to explain it in more useful terms of what we can do. But let's start in verse 15. Remember, Leviticus 23 is really laying out all of these different festivals. If you go back and read all of that, it explains each one kind of a quick narrative of it. Verse 15, and you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You should bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an epaph. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits of the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year, 
without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offering, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goat as a sin offering, and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. You shall be, you, it shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generation. Now, let's break this down. The day after the Sabbath. You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. From the day that you bring the sheaf of the wave. That's that first fruit. That's what we're talking about. They harvest that. They bring it in. It happens after the Saturday Sabbath. Okay, so we're beginning after that Sabbath, which would be Sunday. And then you're going to count 50 days, seven Sabbaths, every seventh day. So it's 49 days plus one. All right? 50 days of the Lord. Two wave loaves, all of that. We'll get into that kind of stuff here in a minute. But it talks about all these different um, sacrifices, and I'll explain that here in depth in just a minute. But because it occurs seven weeks after Passover, this feast is called Shavuot, S-H-A-V-U-O-T. That's the Hebrew word for it, which just means weeks. So you may see it called the Feast of Weeks. It's mentioned in seven other passages, four of which are in the Old Testament, three of which are in the New. Now, first, the Feast of Weeks is also called the first fruits of your labors, okay? That's in Exodus 23. There's several different things that this gets called in Scripture, so I want to point these out to you so you don't get confused. Secondly, it's called the first fruits of the wheat harvest in Exodus chapter 34. Thirdly, it's called, as I said, the Feast of Weeks. That's in Numbers 28 because of Shavuot. Fourthly, the Jewish people were commanded to rejoice on this occasion in Deuteronomy 16. So they were, this is where they're saying this is a time of rejoicing, rejoicing. These things were lavish. These were extremely celebratory. Fifth, the Holy Spirit began His work as the Spirit baptized people in Acts chapter 2. And this is the birth of the church. And we'll go into that in, in detail in a little bit. The sixth passage talks about Paul's desire to be in Jerusalem to observe this in Acts chapter 20. And the seventh time that it's mentioned that he would be in Ephesus until the feast in 1 Corinthians 16. So there are a total of seven different names that we have for the different feasts. It's mentioned seven different times in the Bible. Okay, now you keep noticing these sevens, right? If you've been with us on Wednesday night talking about the revelation, how the sevens seem to be constantly used. Seven represents the number of completion. It's God's finished work, His day when He rests. All was done on the seventh day. And you see this trend continue all the way through Scripture. So, there's different names for it. First of all, it was called the Feast of Weeks because it's seven weeks after the Passover. Secondly, it's the Feast of the Harvest because it marked the end of the first or the spring's harvest season that began with Passover. So it's going on this entire time. Third, it's called the Day of the First Fruits, which was separated from the Feast of the First Fruits. And this is where it kind of can get confusing. Because the first fruits of the summer harvest were always offered on this day, while the first fruits of the spring offering were actually offered at the Feast of the Harvest. So you've got the end of the summer harvest, you've got the spring harvest, summer harvest, and then later into the fall and winter harvest when we talk about the fall feast. Again, this all had to do with agriculture. A bunch of farm people got to love that, right? All right. It's also called the Closing Festival because it marks the end of the first cycle of these festivals. So these things are mentioned several different times, but these four feasts come within 50 days of one another. It's over, and then there is a four-month period that's gapping in between, and then you start the next one. And that is significant. We're just not going to talk about that today. We'll get into that a little bit next week. 
It's also called the closing season of the Passover for the same reason. The sixth is the season of the giving of the law. Because Jewish tradition, you can actually hunt this down through Scripture, is that when the Ten Commandments were given to Moses was on this very day. Okay? And we'll look at that here in a moment. And seventh, and this is the most familiar name, especially for us, is the Feast of Pentecost. That's what we call it when it gets to that time. We just finished the Passover season. Okay, we'll talk about that when we get there and kind of point out what day it is because they will be celebrating it. Now, as you saw in Leviticus 23, it says, I know this is a ton of information, guys. It's like trying to take a drink of water from a fire hose. I apologize, but I want to give you some idea of what we're talking about. It talks about all of these different types of offering, you know, a thank offering, a peace offering, and all of that. I want to recap this real quick for you because it was about a year ago that we talked about these to give you an idea of what's going on because they all had purpose and they were there for a reason. So, there are... Uh, five different types of offerings specifically mentioned. There's the burnt offering, the grain offering, or we call the meal offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. So there's a lot of different offerings, but again, they all had different purposes. The first three are called sweet savor offerings because they are completely voluntary. If you wanted to do it, you could. Now the sin and the trespass offering, if you did something wrong, broke a commandment, wronged a brother, these you had to do because sin was committed. So to God, there was nothing sweet about it. When he talks about the sweet aroma, you can know it's one of these first three. So the burnt offering, all right? It's made by using one of three different types of animals, a bull, a goat, or a bird, just depended. And later on, when you see in the New Testament, there was uh, things put in place like bringing two turtle doves. If they didn't have a lot of money, they couldn't purchase these things. So depending on the wealth of the person that brought it, because again, this was a free will thing, they chose to do it. It had to be a male. It had to have no defect in it. And what would happen is they would bring it into the temple or into the tabernacle, the tabernacle at this point in time in Leviticus, and the offerer, the person bringing it, would put his hands upon this animal as the priest would sacrifice it. They would slit its throat, and it was to make atonement for him, but they were representing, this animal was taking the place of them. All of these offerings, again, are pointing to the work that Jesus did on the cross. But he was taking the place of him. And so now this offerer could identify a little bit with the animal. This would mean something to him. Okay, they would kill and skin the animal, and then the priest would sprinkle the blood on the altar, and the priest would start a fire, and it would clean its entrails and its legs, and then this offering would be completely consumed. It was burnt. There was nothing left, 100% consumed, okay? That's the burnt offering. The grain offering that's mentioned in Leviticus 2 is the only sacrifice that doesn't involve blood directly, because it involves grain, hence the name. Pretty clever. It was never brought by itself. It was always brought in conjunction with a blood offering, but it in and of itself didn't have that. They would bring grain. They would mix it with oil and frankincense, uh, which was always used by the priests. They would bake it into bread, but it had to have no yeast in it, which means no leaven. It had to be that nasty matzah tasting stuff, right? Put a little sugar or something in it. I don't care what you do. That stuff's nasty. If you'd like to try some, see me after service. I'll make sure we get you some because I got like 10 boxes of it because I didn't know how far that stuff would go. So... Uh, but as I said, leaven always is a symbol of sin throughout the Bible. Now, this had to be pure, and it had to be anointed with oil, and the priest would take a portion of it, which was called the memorial portion, and then they would burn it on the altar, and they would also eat. So it would always be eaten by Aaron and his sons. They were the priestly line, the Levites. The peace offering is very similar to a burnt offering in that the animal had to be without any blemish, no defects, no nothing. And he would also lay his hand upon it, and they would kill it. But then the priest would sprinkle the blood around the altar just like they did on the burnt offering. The difference here is this animal could be male or female. 
And it says that only the fat portions would be burned, but that they could eat the rest of the animal. Now, when you think of fat, we typically think the stuff we cut off our steak. But that's not just what it's talking about. It's the best cuts. The best is given to the Lord is what this is referring to. So, again, it was voluntary. And it was given to God in three specific instances. One, it was a time of praising God for His goodness. Because they would do this as a way to say thank you for God's generosity. And you see that several times in Scripture. It's also alongside a fulfilled vow. The Nazarite vow is an example. And a good example of this is when Hannah fulfilled her vow to God by bringing Samuel to the temple. Remember, she said, God, if you will give me a son, I will dedicate him to your purposes, to the work of the temple. And that's exactly what she did. And so to thank God for that, she brings a peace offering. And it was this peace in her heart concerning this sacrifice was to say that I have no resentment for what I'm doing and I'm holding nothing back in the payment of my vow. The vow that she made to God was now complete and so she gives this peace offering, this thanks offering. The last, time, last thing that you see is for a thankfulness of heart in God's deliverance in some hour of need or something like this. Now none of these had to do with anything of propitiation or appeasing God or trying to pacify sin. None of that has anything to do with that. These were willingly given by the individual. But the last two, starting with the sin offering, was for purification. The sin or trespass offering is somewhat tied together here, both of them. But this offering was brought with someone unintentionally. It was an accident. I screwed up. I didn't mean to, but I'm going to fix it. So they may have been unaware of the commandment or they just, you know, something happened and they broke it. Either way, there were five different elements that they would bring that this happened. A young bull, a male goat, a female goat, a dove or a pigeon, and then a tenth of an epaph of fine flour, which was not a ton of flour. So which sacrifice was used depended on what the offender or who the offender was. Because if it was a priest, it had to be a young bull. And if it was for the whole congregation, the whole people of Israel, then again, it was a young bull. A ruler, some sort of a kingly type person, uh, was a male goat. Your average person can be a female goat or a female lamb, doesn't matter. And then a poor person, when they did not have a lot of means, they could bring a dove or simply just bring the flower. But again, the one trend that you always see is this animal had to be without defect, had to be without spot, without blemish. They would lay their hands on it, they would kill the animal, the fat portions are burned on the altar, but this one is a little bit different, because what would happen is the priest would take the rest of the animal outside of the camp in a place that was ceremonially cleansed. Remember, all of this has to do with the ability to enter the presence of God. This is about cleansing, because nothing, the blood of bulls and goats cannot make atonement for sin. Talks about that in Hebrews. But he would, this area would be ceremony cleansed, and then he would burn it. And the priest would eat a portion of this animal back inside of the tabernacle. So it would have to be prepared in either a broken earthen vessel, some sort of a clay pot that was broke, or a bronze pot that was completely scoured. In other words, it had to have the blemish in it, but the sacrifice itself was not. You step into the trespass offering, this is kind of a continuation on from this, is that it was an offering for what sins against God himself. So um, it could be against man, it could be against holy things. If a person would touch a dead thing, they would become uncleansed and they would bring this type of offering. If they broke a commandment, remember there were 613 laws that they had to follow. And it wasn't like, oh, you know, I got 612, right? It was a good day. If you broke one, you broke them all. And so you were not pure in the sight of God. If he lied or he stole from his neighbor, if he overheard somebody swearing, but he didn't say anything about it, if he touched something unclean, okay? There were three types of offerings he could bring. There's the female lamb, there's the two doves or the pigeon. One was for a sin offering. And then again, that one-tenth an epaph of flour, but it had to have no oil or frankincense in it. 
And this sacrifice would work just like the sin offering um, if it was the two doves or the flower. But they would also have to make restitution for whatever it was or whomever that they wronged. If it was against the holy things of God, then they would have to bring a ram that had no spot or blemish, but they would have to add one-fifth the value of this item in silver and give it to the priest. So, I mean, you're talking some money now. If it was against a person, they would have to make up for the lost item plus one-fifth of the value of whatever that they did. So, I mean, again, these things are very technical, but there was a purpose for them because every bit of this, guys, points to Jesus. Jesus was taken outside of the temple. He was crucified in a place that was considered holy. They call it Golgotha. And he was put up on the cross as this sacrifice for us. He willingly laid down his life for us. He put the sin of the, the Father, put the sin of the world upon him that he took from us as that sin offering, as that trespass offering. So you've got all of this being encompassed into what Jesus did. So it's all pointing to him, which is significant. Now I know, again, a lot of technical stuff, but when we talk about all these offerings in Leviticus 23, there was a purpose to all of them. Now if we had more time, we could go back and we could say, okay, look at this, and here's what they're doing here. We're not going to do that. I know you're going to go home, you're going to read it, you're going to like, man, this is fun. We love reading Leviticus. It's like when you wake up on a day and you're like, I just need something inspirational. Let's go read about the sacrifices. Those are good. That's a joke. Tough crowd. Let's go. All right. So these things in together. When we look at this thing, as far as the biblical practice is concerned, there are three things that we want to look at. First, there were two wave loaves offered. It was on a single sheet. I'm going to show you that in a minute. But these would be loaves of bread that had leaven in it. Okay? That was the second part. This is the only festival that leaven was ever permitted to be added to the sacrifice. Leaven is a symbol of sin, and that is significant. The third here is the date of this feast was the sixth day of the month of Savan. Can we put up those months again? Savan is right there, month number three. It's on the sixth day. Now remember, they work on a lunar calendar, so these things move around. It has to do with that uh, specifically. So it was seven weeks plus one day after Passover. So... That's kind of how they look at it from a biblical standpoint. Let's look at the Jewish observance of it because there's a couple of things here. They would look at this at the Feast of Weeks. Several things would be noted. The first thing is they always read the book of Ruth on the Feast of Pentecost every time. Now, if you, if you were here during that last series, um, that you realize that the book of Ruth is completely pointing to the Gentile church. Ruth was not a Jewish person. But she was brought in by Boaz, and he married her. And it's always, I mean, this stuff is read in colleges because they're like, wow, this is the great love story. That's not it. It has to do with the near kinsman redeemer and how Jesus is our kinsman redeemer because of what he's done. We're now brought in. We are brought into one body in Christ, the Jew and the Gentile. Because the Jews were separated by God in Genesis chapter 11. And from there, they were the people that brought in the Messiah. And God's not done with them yet. But you and I are Gentile. If you're not Jewish, you are Gentile. And because of that and what you see in Ruth is this whole picture of what Jesus is going to do brought into the fold and say, okay, now it makes sense. Now that is up online, I believe. If, you, if you're unfamiliar with it, you'll be able to go back and listen to it. But they would read this story every year. And I just think that's so interesting because, again, they read it from the standpoint. It's like, oh, she became a proselyte Jew, which is true, but that's not the purpose behind it. It's that the Jew and Gentile now can come in together and be one with God, which is exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2, which we're going to see in a moment. Another reason that they do this is they read the book, she was a Gentile, she converted the law, 
fine. A third thing that they look at is that why they read the book of Ruth is because a tradition says that King David was actually born during the Feast of Weeks, during the Feast of Pentecost. Now, that's tradition. We don't know. He was a descendant of Ruth, though. So King David, who is the most notable king in the Bible, a man after God's own heart, came from a Jew and Gentile relationship. Okay, interesting enough. Now, another thing that they do is they stay up all night and they study the Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Bible, okay, the Pentateuch. Again, that sounds fun, doesn't it? Genesis through Deuteronomy, man, it's five books, it's a lot of reading, y'all. I don't know if all night would get you there, but they stay up all of that, and the reason they do this is because of the Mosaic Law was given during this time. And what's interesting about that is they said, because, and we'll see this in a moment, there's thunder and there's lightning going on. And so they said the tradition has it that the thunder and lightning kept the people awake, and that's why they do it. So they stay up all night, just like they had to when the law was given. That's not what was going on, but that's what they say. One of the third thing here, is, which is kind of interesting, is that they eat this food called kreplak. And I've got a picture of this. It's kind of a uh, ravioli. And it's got it's a triangle, and it's not like Italian ravioli. It's a little bit different because it's got meat, and it's got garlic in it and, and all of that, um, which is the same. But where it's normally squares, they make it in the triangle, and they, these three sides are significant to them because it represents a couple of different things. First of all, it represents the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one on each side. Then it also talks about the three divisions of the Old Testament. You've got the law, the prophets, and then the wisdom literature, like Proverbs and Psalms and things like that. The third one here is that it signifies that Moses was the third of three children of that family. And it signifies the three days that were necessary in the preparation of the receiving of the law. So, here. Now, they don't serve this in, like, tomato sauce like they would have in an Italian ravioli. It's usually in a soup or something like that. Interesting, but the three sides mean something to them, and that's why they do that. And so another one that they do is they eat cheese, and cheese is produced from milk. And one of this, what this has to do with is God took them in the land that was flowing with milk and honey. That's why they do that. So they eat this thing called a cheese blitz. I think I got a picture of that too. I do. That's kind of what it looks like. It's folded into squares, and, and it's representative of the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments were square tablets written on both sides. That's why they do this. Um, it's, it's more like a crepe. If you've ever had a crepe, I've seen these things eaten. I've never tried them. Um, yeah, I tried the duck egg thing in, in Philippines. I guess I should try this one of these days. But anyway, but yeah, it, uh, so it represents these two tablets. The duck egg is a balut, if you don't know, if you weren't here. It's a fertilized duck egg. You eat the egg part, and in the bottom is the baby duck, and then you eat it, and it's not good. So, uh, but we can get them here if you want to try it. And then another thing they do is they take branches from trees or grass and they put it inside the temple. They spread it all over the floor of the temple or the synagogue where they go. That's basically their church. And it was remembered that they should be praying for a crop, a good harvest. That's part of what they do. Okay? Again, lots of technical information. Let's get in these two loaves because this is where it gets significant. The element that has messianic significance are these loaves. We keep talking about all of this, but this is similar to what they would look like depending on who's baking it, but they, it's some sort of a twisted bread. There's two of them together. It's always brought on a single sheet. Now, it talks about the wave offering where the priests would wave them before the Lord, before they would be consumed, they would be burned, whatever. But these two loaves represent the two types of people in the church because you have Jews and Gentiles, and it says that we are all made one in Christ. This is significant. You and I do not gather or understand how significant that is because to them, you are a Jew or you are a pagan. 
Now that sounds harsh, but that's literally how God laid it out. He needed people that were isolated to bring in the Messiah. Now you could become a Jew if you put yourself underneath the commandments, you followed all the practices, all 613 laws, you would become circumcised, all of these different things, and then you practice as a Jew. It's called a proselyte Jew. And you were seen as a Jew, but you were never seen as a Jew. You were never treated like you were a born blood Jew. But here it is, you see these two people coming together again. Now, they don't, rep- they don't recognize why they do this stuff, but this is all prophetic in nature of what's happening because in Acts chapter 2 is where we see all of this come together. These loaves were to be leavened, right? Remember, everything else was that flat, nasty bread. This has leaven. It puffs up. That's what leaven does. That is the root of sin is pride. Pick any sin you want. The root of it is pride. And so these two things would be, represents the church, and the Jewish people coming together as one sacrifice. They are coming together for God. Now, when we look at the beginnings of all of this, when we talk about how this is the giving of the law, where Israel is now officially a nation, they, they have a covenant with God. This takes place in Exodus. And so to save time, I don't want to read all of this, but Moses essentially is on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. And this is the giving of the law. And prior to this, the Israelites entered in what's called a betrothal covenant with God. He says, you know what? I will be your God. You will be my people. Will you keep my commands? Lays out the commands. They say, yes, we will. It is a covenant between man and God. That means there's two parties. That means it can be broken. And as you're going to see here in a moment, it was broken because as he's up there receiving these Ten Commandments, what are they doing? They're down there building a golden calf. They pull out all their earrings from where they were in Egypt. These were the signs that they were slaves. That's why they had them. And they convince Aaron to melt them together, and they create this golden calf. And so they're dancing around it, and they're worshiping, and they're saying, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, this goes back to the things that were in Egypt, you know, the different kind of pagan religions that were there. But it's all going on here. So they're worshiping it and says that this is the God that brought you out. Now, God tells Moses, your people are being crazy. You need to go down there and deal with them because they are out of their mind. And so he's going down there, and rightfully so. They have now broken the covenant that they've entered in with God. When you break the covenant with God, there is judgment that's brought upon you. And Moses is going to convince God, no, don't destroy your people. Keep a remnant and all of that. But you're going to watch what happens here in Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 25. Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them, to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. Now, this is early, but this is a precursor. All the Levites, the sons of Levi, are going to be that priestly line. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Now 3,000 sounds like a lot of people, and it is, but there was a lot of these people here. 3,000 is a small percentage of what is actually there. But it's bringing judgment upon them because they are breaking the commandment of God. That they are now, when that betrothal is the same thing, when they get married, they would become betrothed to one another. And it was the only way they could separate before the marriage would ever be consummated is a letter of divorce. They'd have to divorce even if that marriage had never been consummated. That is why when Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, they were betrothed, but the marriage had not been consummated. And so... 
what would you do? Be like, sayonara, right? She's gone. It took an angel to say, no, this is of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know what you're thinking because this is what I'd be thinking. One, you go home to your parents like, I swear it was God that did this to me. That's not going to fly with me. And then if your significant other goes, no, seriously, this was the Holy Spirit, you're going to see like psychological help here because they're nuts. But that is what's going on, and that's why he was upset. He was ready to divorce her and move on, even though that marriage had never been consummated. It took the angel to explain to him what was going on. They are entered into a covenant with God in the same manner. And that is why he talks about later how he divorced Israel, but he will remarry them. And that has a lot to do, and you see that with Hagar and some of these other uh, people in these later stories that are written down, is that is, again, pointing to what's going on here. But this all happened, this giving of the law, the killing of the 3,000 people happened on the Feast of Pentecost. This is that same time frame. Now we're going to fast forward. Jesus dies on the cross on Passover. He's put in the grave for three days and three nights up until we come to the Feast of First Fruits. He is resurrected. And when he comes up, he brings the, the people out of the grave resurrected at the same time as the First Fruits offering. They were marked when he went into the grave at the moment of his death, just like they marked that barley, that, that omer. And so they would begin, he comes up, and now he's on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. What did we just read about the law, right? Moses was a type of Christ. He was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Here he is giving direction. He's going around. It talks about many infallible proofs. We're going to jump into Acts chapter 1, okay, because he's going to give them a command. In Acts chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1. Remember, Acts is written by Luke. Luke was a doctor. Luke was commissioned by a man named Theophilus to write down an orderly account of what was going on. So this just happens after the fact, within a few years, not very long. Verse 1, the former account I made, O Theophilus, the former account he's referring to is the book of Luke, is what we're referring to. Of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostle whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We're going to pause there for a minute. We'll break this down. He gives his apostles direction. You see that at the end of the book of John and several other places that you can see what he's telling them to do. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations. Those are the commands. He presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. What are those proofs? The healing of the sick. All of those things that Jesus did, that John says there was too many miracles that we could write down. This book would be too long. Nobody would read it. But all of this is going on. And there he is 40 days. We see the connection, okay? Verse 4, and being assembled together with them, he, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's pause for a minute, okay? So they're assembled together in Jerusalem, right? Why are they there? Because every male able-bodied Jew is required at Passover to go back to Jerusalem. It's no different today. If you're able to get there, you do that, and you celebrate Passover there. So they're already in Jerusalem. So he tells them to wait. Don't leave. Wait, because Pentecost is coming. And that was another one that they were supposed to be there for. That's one of the other ones, okay? So they said, John, truly baptized with water. You should be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You see that in every single gospel. John says, I baptize with water, one coming after me whose sandals I am not fit to tie will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
Now, as far as the Holy Spirit's concerned, the people had received, the apostles received the Holy Spirit at the end of the book of John because Jesus breathed on them. He tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. That's indicative of what we would call a salvation experience where somebody has given their life to Christ. Same thing, the Holy Spirit now indwells you. What's happening in Acts chapter 2 is a different event and it has different repercussions. Verse 6, therefore, when you had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or season which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now let's pause there for a moment. Okay, why are they asking if he's going to restore the kingdom? Remember, they, the Jewish people, had believed that there was two uh, different messiahs. You've got Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. Ben David is the one that is the ruling king. They had been waiting on this suffering servant that we see in Isaiah 53. And what had been a popular teaching at that time is that Israel was that suffering servant because of everything that they went through. Now, everything they went through was self-inflicted, but be that as it may, they convinced them for that. And that is why they keep asking Jesus, Jesus, when you set up your kingdom, can I sit at the right hand of you? That was a position of power. That's why they keep asking. They're still asking him. He says, it's not for you to know. The times are the season. These times are season are what we're talking about here, these first fruit. Because Jesus in that fall feast, what we're going to talk about next week, that's when he's returning. Okay? He says, you'll receive power by the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. What is the purpose of that power, that Holy Spirit, that baptism in the Holy Spirit? is to put power upon you to be his witness. Verse 9. Now he had spoken these things while they washed. He was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come so in a like manner as you saw him go into heaven." In other words, what's he going to do? He's going to return in the same manner in which he left. That is why when we talk about the book of Revelation on Wednesday night, we talk about Jesus returning. He's returning in the clouds because that is what it says right here. And this is where that belief comes from. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which isn't far away, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James, not Judas, the one that that, uh, took the 30 pieces of silver to hand Jesus over. Verse 14, these all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now, that upper room that we talk about, remember, these houses had all these rooms. They had a first floor level, part of which they would keep animals in. They would live. That upper room is where your guests would stay. And when you came into Jerusalem or anywhere else, you stayed with family. So they're in this upper room, just a part of the house. It's not a huge, but there's a few of them there. This is all the precursor that gets to Acts chapter 2, which we see is the Feast of Pentecost, and we see something significant happen. It is literally the birth of the church, is what we call it. It's the reason that you and I gather today. It's the reason that we have the ability to go out and be the witness of Jesus that he had commanded, because at this moment, when you give your life to Christ, the secondary infilling, the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and now you can do the same things that Jesus did. That's what Mark 16 tells us, as well as other places. So let's jump into Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, what day is it? The day we're talking about. 
It is now that day. They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Was there wind? No. It was the sound of wind. It wasn't something blown. It talks about this tongues of fire sat upon each of them when they were going through the desert after the exodus. They had the cloud by day and the fire by night. Fire is always a representative of the Holy Spirit. And it talks about they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Verse 5, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Now then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, all of these things going on, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Now, why do they make that statement? Are these not all Galileans? Well, the reason they make that statement, the reason they're so confused, is they hear them speaking their own language. Now, whether they were literally speaking that language or God opened their ears to hear it, I don't know. Either way, it's supernatural because the Galileans were looked down upon as uneducated folks. It's what we would consider people from the sticks, you know. I was in West Virginia for a wedding a few years ago, and they taught me about a place called Boone County. And in Boone County, you don't enter that place at night because there's several places with no running water, no electricity, and they shoot first and ask questions later. And I'm not kidding. The sign, because we did drive by it, was full of bullet holes. And they drove around, they lived off the land, and they were looked down upon as a bunch of country bumpkins, a bunch of rednecks. That is how the Galileans were looked upon. They're not as educated as us. This is a small town. They don't know how can they speak all of these languages, because we all hear them. These are Jews from all over the world. Finer place, the best places in Greece and Greek language and educations and all that, and Galileans didn't have it, right? There are several people that look upon Rockport in the same way, right? But they're wrong, because we're all super smart and awesome people, right? Can I get an amen or something, y'all? Come on, help me out. All right. So they're looking, they're perplexed, they're amazed. What could this mean? Verse 13, others mocking said they are full of new wine. Another way to put that's not quite so eloquent. They're drunk. They've been hitting the sauce a little early today, right? Now that's created a whole bunch of weird doctrines that are not biblically accurate. It's the only place you ever see this. But verse 14, then Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's morning, still eating bacon and eggs. Well, they're probably not eating bacon because they're Jewish. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, Peter, remember, Peter was a babbling buffoon all through the New Testament. But now this Holy Spirit comes upon him, and there's a huge change in this man. On top of that, prior to Jesus leaving, he sat down with his disciples, and he says he opened the Scripture to him and revealed that all that was there was written of him. That's why we took a year going through that last series. It's explaining everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. So here's Peter. Suddenly he's bold. Remember, he's the one that denied Christ at the cross three times, once to a little girl. So now he's going to stand up in front of all these people. 
Verse 16, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He's reading a prophecy here. He's actually reciting it. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming and the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He just This prophecy had been around for hundreds of years. Suddenly has a purpose because now they are living it. It's in this moment that this is the beginning of the fulfillment of this. That the Spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but there are signs in the wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth beneath of his, the great and awesome day of the coming of the Lord. What is that talking about? When Jesus returns from those clouds, when he comes back down. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. How did God attest him? Through miracles, through wonders, and signs. And these guys were there to see it, so they know about it. They choose to deny it. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. God determined that Jesus would die on the cross. No question about it. It wasn't like they won. He knew what was going on. Verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, for it is not possible that he should be held by death. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, would, he would rise up the Christ to sit on, the th- on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that is soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. I'm going to pause there for a minute because we see Hades. What does Hades mean? We think hell. Okay? We get the idea of what hell is, not from the Bible, but from Dante's Inferno because the Bible doesn't talk about a lot about it. But this Hades is the place of the holding place of the dead. And you see in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, you have a place of torment and you have a place of peace. And he's calling across to Lazarus and saying, let him dip his finger in some water and just touch the tip of my tongue that I can get some relief. There's this chasm, but it's divided. That's where Jesus went. When he preaches to the, the souls that had passed already, he's telling them that it is finished. The work is complete, and he brings them back with them and delivers them to the Father. There are many that had believed that this passage is about David himself, that David was writing about himself in this because there was a promise of God in the Davidic covenant that somebody from his line would always sit on the throne of David. That throne is still waiting for Jesus to sit on it because he's sitting on the throne of his Father right now with him. But when all things are brought to him and delivered into his hand, then he will sit on his own throne. 
And so here we are, verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. How do we know that David wasn't talking about himself? That right there. The Lord said to my Lord, you've got the Father and the Son communicating. Read Psalms chapter 2 because you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all communicating together. The trialogue that's going on. Watch what he says here in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, that Christ is the deliverer, the Messiah, the anointed one. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, and to your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord your God will call. This is written to everybody. It's written to them, to their children, and to all who are far off. And you and I are far off. This was 2,000 years ago. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And watch this. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now think about that. Go back to the time of Moses. How many people were, was judgment brought upon at the giving of the law? 3,000. How many were given new life through Jesus at the giving of the Spirit? 3,000. Those are not arbitrary numbers, folks. Those are there for a purpose. Every letter, every period, every number, everything is there deliberately by the Holy Spirit. This Bible is not just some, some holy book that we just look at. It is 66 books written by over 40 authors over a 1,500-year span that they did not know one another, and yet the theme of it all the way through it is about Jesus. And when they stood up and they said, what must we do to be saved? Because they're cut to the heart. Because suddenly they realized that we are dying in our sins. What do we need to do? And Peter said, you need to be repent. You need to repent right now. And be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. It's the same thing that we have to do. Going to church does not make you a born-again believer. Doing good deeds does not make you a born-again believer. Doing bad deeds does not make you not a born-again believer because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed it. If you've, if you've messed up on one of His laws, you messed up on all of them. But thanks be to God who in His foreknowledge and His perception knew that we needed a Messiah before the foundation of the world. He knew Adam and Eve were going to sin. He knew they were going to miss it. He knew they were going to mess up. And yet He's given us a way through Him that we can receive this new life. And it's only through Him. Not through good things that we do. Not by being a good person. Because we're not. If God is the standard of good, then none of us, none of us meet up to that. And that is the only standard that there can be. It's not a fluidity. God is that standard. And so we've all missed and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so I'm going to ask you guys this today. I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to ask you to repeat this prayer after me. And if you mean this in your heart, and if you've never given your life to Jesus, then today you can walk out of here with the assurance of knowing that He is your Savior, He is your Messiah. You may ask, why do I need a Savior? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's one way to God. He said, it's through Jesus. And that's it. We are saved by His grace. It's through faith, which means we put our trust in Him, that all can be saved. So I'm going to pray. Just repeat after me. Father, we just thank You for sending Your Son to die in our place.
that we can have eternal life with you. So right now, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And we believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead. And because of that, we can be saved. And so, Lord, we thank you for all that you've done and all that you continue to do. And that my life is forever changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's important. If you meant that in your heart and you've never done it, then you are now a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new is come, and now your life can be forever changed to be in the image of God and what God created you to be. Amen.